You are now listening to the January 4th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Biblical Stewardship, Grace Upon Grace, and Refining Faith. First, let's begin with Biblical Stewardship. Hello everyone, it's Brian Winston from the new program, Biblical Stewardship. The knife in the hand of a robber or gangster and the knife in the hand of the best chef is the same knife, but the result will be completely different. Also, the knife in the hand of a doctor is used to save a person's life, so we can't say that the knife itself is good or evil. Depending on whose hand it's in and how it's used determines whether it could be used for good or evil. Money is also the same way. Money itself is not good or evil depending on whose hand it's in and how it's used determines whether it could bring a good result or an evil result. The Bible doesn't say that money is evil. It says that the love of money is evil. The first part of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, says love for money causes all kinds of evil. Also, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 says, There will be terrible times in the last days. People will love themselves. They will love money. Therefore, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 tells us, Don't be controlled by the love for money. The topic of money is one of the biggest issues in the age we live in. People think that the more money they have, the happier they'll be. They believe they will have more comfort. Since money will bring comfort, people sacrifice their lives, time, and health to make money. This is very contradictory. To make money that brings comfort to people who overwork themselves? All this happens because we have a worldly value of money and possessions instead of a biblical one. In biblical stewardship, we will look for biblical values of money and possessions through the Word and reestablish that value in our lives. It's because how we handle money and possessions is a good indication of what kind of relationship we'll have with God. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, Jesus says, Your heart will be where your riches are. This means where and how we use the possessions God entrusted us with determines what we truly love. If we're Christians, we must not think of money as something bad or wrong. We must correct where and how we use and handle this tool that God has allowed us. We must also know what responsibilities come with the possessions we've been entrusted with. For 13 weeks starting today, what we learn through this program is not intended to accuse you of your financial problems. Instead, we want to free you from the worldly perspectives of money and possessions that are binding you. I hope we can be free in the Lord and in the truth. First of all, I would like to inform you that Biblical Stewardship is based on the book Money and Possessions by K. Arthur of Precept Ministry. Let's start the first session of Biblical Stewardship. The Bible proclaims that everything that exists in heaven and earth belongs to God. What do you think about this proclamation? Most Christians will accept the truth that everything in heaven and earth belongs to God. However, if we ask this question more and more to ourselves, then it won't be easy for us to answer, it belongs to God, to everything. 
Can I give you an example? Who does your spouse belong to? What about your children? What about your house or business? Can you acknowledge that the people you meet every day, such as your coworkers or customers, belong to God? What about your time? What about your possessions? What about your health? Also, who do you belong to? Are you able to acknowledge that everything belongs to God? I'm not asking this question to hear a simple intellectual answer such as God is the master of everything. This question is asking whether you live by acknowledging that God is the master of everything you have. When we read the Bible, we can often see Jesus teach about the duties towards God to those who followed him. Also, how we use our time and possessions determines whether we'll receive a reward or not in the future when we meet God. For this reason, we must correctly use all the possessions that were entrusted to us and be prepared to meet the Lord. It is my desire to do this preparation with you. Today, we'll be learning about the end of Jesus' ministry on earth and the parable he told to his disciples. We'll see what he wanted his disciples who remain on earth to know. We'll read Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 13 together. While the people were listening to these things, Jesus told them a story. He was near Jerusalem. The people thought that God's kingdom was going to appear right away, Jesus said. A man from an important family went to a country far away. He went there to be made king and then return home. So he sent for ten of his slaves. He gave them each about three months' pay. Put this money to work until I come back, he said. Verse 11 says the people were listening to these things. If you read Luke chapter 19, you will understand what the situation was. Jesus will go to Jerusalem on a donkey to carry the cross. Right before then, he came to Jericho and met the famous tax collector named Zacchaeus and went to his house. People started murmuring as they saw Jesus and his disciples staying at a tax collector's house. They said that Jesus was close to sinners. Then Jesus proclaimed this to the house of Zacchaeus, who people regarded as a sinner. Today, salvation has come to your house. You are a member of Abraham's family line. Then Jesus clearly tells the purpose of why he came. Let's read Luke chapter 19, verse 10. The Son of Man came to look for the lost and save them. Yes, Jesus didn't come for the righteous, but for the lost. He came to save sinners. Luke chapter 19, verse 11 starts when the disciples heard Jesus tell the reason and purpose of why he came here on earth. The book of Luke records that while they were listening to this, Jesus added a parable and spoke. Now, I'll give you some homework. I hope you can read Luke chapter 19 during the week, as you especially read chapter 19, verses 10 through 25. I hope you can meditate on why Jesus added this parable and what he wanted to tell his disciples. Next time, I hope we can share what we've learned. I'll see you next on Biblical Stewardship.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Jesus and Money. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. Today, we're going to look at Jesus and money in a way that I pray will transform our lives and the days ahead when it comes to money and really for all of eternity. So we're about to read the story of a rich man who approached Jesus asking him about eternal life. But before we read it, I want to ask us to open our hearts to what God has to say to us today. Because when we hear the word rich, we usually think about those people who have more than we do, like that person is rich, which means we rarely perceive ourselves as rich because we can always think of richer people. And that's true. There are varying levels of riches around us, varying levels of riches in the church for that matter. But we all need to realize that if we have clean water, sufficient food and clothes, a roof over our heads at night, access to medicine, a mode of transportation, even if it's public, opportunity for work, the ability to read a book, then relative to billions of people in the world, we are very rich and for yours. So let's read the story with open hearts. And then I want to dive with you into 10 truths that we learned from it about Jesus and money that are very different from the way we are prone to think. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. The Bible says, as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Many who are first will be last and the last first. All right, truth number one, Jesus' call to salvation demands radical surrender. Jesus' call to salvation demands radical surrender. So let's be honest here. Like according to contemporary standards, Jesus would have just failed personal evangelism class. I picture this guy comes running up to him, bows down, he's eager. He's young, he's rich, intelligent, influential. Like this is a prime prospect. Just imagine, if this guy becomes a follower of Jesus, we can get him on the circuit, start sharing his story, think of all he could do. We have to get this guy in. And he's asking, how can I be saved? That's what this text is all about. Eternal life, salvation, entrance to God's kingdom. Those terms are used six times in this passage, all of them used synonymously. So Jesus says to him, here's the commandments, and go, sell all you have, give it to the poor, then come follow me. This is eternal life. No, hey man, pray a prayer, say these words, and you're in. Jesus apparently has no clue how to close the sale. And what is a classic example of letting the big fish get away, the man leaves. Why? Because he was not willing to surrender his possessions to Jesus. 
Did you hear the man's language? He called Jesus a good teacher. Apparently, this man was willing to have Jesus as a teacher to respect, but not as a Lord to obey. I give you a picture of so much of what passes as Christianity today. So many have come into so-called Christianity through an invitation to say some words or pray a prayer, but have never been confronted with the reality that Jesus is the Lord before whom we lay down our lives, including our possessions. I fear that many, even in this gathering today, are fine to look to Jesus as a teacher to respect, but not as a Lord to obey and to call that Christianity. But do not be fooled. According to the Bible, you are not a Christian if you are not looking to Jesus as Lord. This is the most basic Christian confession. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is a respectable teacher, oh, as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's all over what we're reading in the Gospels right now. Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Die to yourself and follow me wherever and however I lead you, no matter what it costs. Luke 14, 33, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So I ask you, based straight on the words from Jesus' mouth, do you die daily to all that you are and renounce all that you have to declare allegiance to Jesus as Lord of your life? This is what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Christ. And for some today, you have spent years, maybe decades, playing games with Jesus. And today is the day to declare allegiance to Jesus as Lord. Jesus' call to salvation demands radical, total surrender. Knowing that, number two, Jesus' call to salvation involves radical commands. When you look at verse 21 here, you see five commands in one verse. Go, sell, give, come, follow. That is loaded. Now, there are two common errors when it comes to these commands in this passage. So the first error is when people try to universalize them, basically saying that every follower of Jesus has been commanded to sell everything they have and give it to the poor. But we know that's not the case because even the disciples in this passage who we know had abandoned much to follow Christ, at least a couple of them still had a home. They likely still had boats, some kind of material support. So obviously following Jesus doesn't mean that you can no longer own private property or possessions or have a job. So many of us breathe a sigh of relief at that point and we think, okay, good. We don't have to sell everything we have and give it to the poor, but be careful because that leads to the second common error. So some people universalize these commands, try to apply them to everyone, and then other people minimize these commands, basically thinking Jesus would not call us to do this, when the reality is if this story teaches us anything, it teaches us that Jesus does call some people to sell everything they have and give it to the poor. In other words, Jesus could say this to any one of us. We'll do that here with other passages like I read from Luke 9, Luke 14. We'll say what Jesus really meant was, and this is where we really need to pause because this is where we are subtly giving in to a temptation to take the Jesus of the Bible and twist him into a version of Jesus that we're a little more comfortable with. We create a nice, middle-class, Northern Virginia, Southern Maryland version of Jesus who doesn't mind our materialism, who would never call us to give everything away, a Jesus who wants us to be balanced, to avoid dangerous extremes. For that matter, a Jesus who wants us to avoid danger altogether, a Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live out a nice, 
Christian spin on the American dream. But do we realize what we're doing? We are molding Jesus into our image. We are making Jesus into someone who looks like us and thinks like us. And without even knowing it, we're now in real danger. As a people who have molded Jesus into our image, follow this. Now, when we gather together on a Sunday and we sing our songs and we lift up our hands in worship to this version of Jesus we've created in our image, the reality is we're not actually worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. Instead, we are worshiping ourselves and we are calling it Christianity. We cannot minimize Jesus' commands. This is the Jesus we follow. And his commands often go totally against the grain of the way this world thinks and the way we are wired to think. So again, this is the question we all need to ask. Put these two truths together. Do you, right where you are sitting, declare allegiance to Jesus as Lord of your life such that you will do everything he says to do and give away whatever he tells you to give away. When it comes to money, specifically, are you looking to Jesus for some advice in your life? Or are you looking to Jesus for sole leadership of your life? There is a significant difference. And will you follow him when his word goes against everything our affluent culture tells you to do. Jesus' call to salvation demands radical surrender and involves radical commands. Now, number three, and please don't miss this. Like some of you are ready to tune me out. Some of you, all it took was point one. And by the way, if I'm saying anything that does not square with the Bible, then please tune me out. Number three, don't miss this. Jesus calls us to give sacrificially to the poor because he loves us. So verse 21 includes radical commands for this rich man. And they can almost seem cold when they come out of Jesus' mouth. It's like Jesus goes right for the jugular. And it can seem hard. It seems hard to us, right? But don't miss the beauty of this passage. Look at the very beginning of verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He loved him. Oh, don't miss this. Jesus loves rich people like me and you enough to tell us the truth. This is so important here. Jesus is not giving this rich man an ultimatum because he doesn't care about him, because Jesus wants the worst for him, because Jesus wants to make his life hard and miserable. No, Jesus is giving this rich man these commands because he wants what is best for him. Oh, God, help us to believe this, that surrender to Jesus, obedience to Jesus is for our good. Jesus demands radical surrender, gives radical commands. Why? Because Jesus loves you and me. And he knows better than us what is best for our lives. God, free us from pride, from thinking we know better than you who created us what is best for our lives. Open our hearts to hear. Oh, we were reading Luke 12 earlier this week. I was so struck as I read this. You've got to see this. In Luke 12, 33, Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. So he doesn't just tell, this is not an isolated incident. Doesn't just tell one guy to sell his possessions. He says it to all his disciples in Luke chapter 12. But then I want you to listen to what he says right before this. I could not get over this verse this week. Luke 12, 32, Jesus says, fear not little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What a verse. Like, let's just keep that on the screen for a minute and realize how packed that verse is. Like in one verse, you got three pictures of God in your life. Jesus just said that God is a shepherd who protects you. We are his little flock. Two, God is a father who loves us, who takes pleasure in loving us. And three, God is a king who promises us a kingdom. So in light of this, in light of the fact that the God of the universe is your shepherd who protects you, he's your father who loves you, he's your king who has an eternal kingdom that he has prepared for you, sell your possessions and give to the poor. 
Oh, don't miss this. The key to overcoming materialism is believing that Jesus and his plans for you are so much better than the possessions of this world. Jesus is better than money. He's better than more things, than nicer, newer clothes, and bigger, better possessions. Jesus is better. Believe this. Oh, believe this. Jesus calls us to give sacrificially, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. God, help us to hear this. He's not telling us this because he wants our lives to be miserable, because he wants our lives to be good. He wants a life for us that is better than the best things this world has to offer. Jesus wants a life for you that is better than the best things this world has to offer if only you will trust his love. That's the question. And this third truth, right? What do you trust to satisfy you more? God in the flesh or the stuff of this world? God help us to choose wisely. Jesus calls us to give sacrifice to the poor because he loves us. Which then leads to truth number four. The gospel, not guilt, is the primary reason why we give sacrificially to the poor. The gospel, not guilt. Oh, this is so important. Jump down to verse 23 with me, where Jesus says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, exclamation point. Now that verse should reverberate in this room right now. Like Jesus just said, it's hard to get to heaven from Loudon. It's really hard. Jesus says the same thing again in verse 24. And then in verse 27, he says it's impossible with man, but not with God. Meaning the life of a true follower of Jesus, that at least in this case, gives everything one has for the poor, that kind of surrender and obedience is not natural. It is supernatural. It comes from God. And that is the primary point of Mark 10. Don't miss it. The primary point of this passage is that we need new hearts. Don't miss the point. Like nothing we're seeing in God's word today comes naturally, right? Like the world thinks what we're talking about right now is crazy. Some, maybe many who are here today think this is crazy. Especially if you're not a Christian or you're a nominal Christian, a Christian in name only. But that's kind of the point. Because everything changes when God takes hold of a heart. When God opens a person's eyes to the gospel, to who Jesus is. Think about it. Everything changes when God opens our eyes to the reality that we have all rebelled against the perfect, holy, good, just God who created us. And we all deserve eternal judgment for that. When someone realizes this, and then realizes that God loves us and has made a way for us to be saved from judgment and brought back into relationship with him, when you realize God has come to us in the person of Jesus, he has laid down his perfect life on a cross to pay the price for all of our sin, all of our rebellion against God. And then Jesus rose from the dead in victory over sin. When someone realizes this, when someone realizes the depth of God's love for them, they renounce their sin, all their love for the things of this world over love for God. They announce their allegiance to Jesus as Lord. God forgives them of their sin and fills them with his spirit. And then they have a new heart, the very heart of Jesus in them. So what happens? They want to give to the poor. They don't have to be cajoled into sacrificial giving which is sadly what so many pictures of Christian giving revolve around today, manipulating and manufacturing giving from people and making them feel guilty for all they have. No, it is not guilt that drives us. It's the gospel. It's Jesus inside of us. And when Jesus's heart is our heart, we don't have to be cajoled in a sacrificial giving. No, sacrificial giving just makes sense to us. So see it. Our greatest need is new hearts. Like we need new hearts. All across this room, we need the heart of Jesus. We need God to change our hearts so that we want to give for the hurting and the poor. And we want to give, not because we feel guilty, but because we are overwhelmed with the love of God for us and for those in need. This is an otherworldly kind of giving. 
that cannot be manufactured by man. We need God to give us new hearts. Number five, we need to understand our use of money and possessions in the context of redemptive history. Now that's a loaded sentence. You may wonder, what does that mean? I'm glad you asked. This is so important. When we hear this conversation between Jesus and the disciples, we need to put ourselves in the disciples' shoes. When Jesus says it is difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, the disciples, the Bible says, are amazed at his words. They're amazed, like shocked. And then Jesus says it again in verse 26, says the disciples were exceedingly astonished. So they were amazed, now they're exceedingly astonished. So that's like ratchet up some levels. Which begs the question, why? Why were they so amazed, exceedingly astonished by what Jesus says here? And the answer goes in part back to Old Testament history. Think about this with me. We've read it over the last six months. Throughout the Old Testament, God promised to bless his people materially for their obedience to him. God was promising to bless his people with abundant material prosperity for their obedience. And this continues. You just think about the extravagant wealth God promised David and gave to Solomon. Now think about why. Because God was establishing his people in a physical land as a nation with a temple that was constructed, designed to display God's glory among other nations, all the nations. So now imagine when in Mark 10, a rich man who has strictly followed God's law ever since he was a kid says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom? And Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. The disciples are shocked. Why? Because they thought obedience to God led to acquiring possessions in the world. But Jesus just said that obedience to God in this man's life meant not acquiring possessions, but abandoning possessions. And you look at the story of the Bible, which we're reading through as a church, you realize this passage represents a major shift in redemptive history, the story of God bringing salvation, redemption to the world. For from this point on, really from the point Jesus comes in the Bible, the New Testament, listen to this, material reward on this earth for spiritual obedience will never again be promised to God's people. Oh, this is so important. Please follow this. When we are reading our Bibles, we need to see significant shifts that happen from the Old Testament to the New Testament. You just think about this in numerous ways. Like Old Testament, they sacrificed animals for their sins, right? New Testament, Jesus is our perfect, once and for all, full and final sacrifice for our sins. Old Testament, the temple was the special dwelling place of God's Spirit. New Testament, God's Spirit dwells in every single believer. We are the temple. Old Testament, God was working through a nation. The New Testament, God is working through his churches that are gathering and multiplying among all nations. Old Testament, they gave money to build a temple for the display of God's glory. New Testament, we give money to the church as a people for the spread of God's glory in the nations. Think about how we miss this. We oftentimes view church as a building, which misses the whole point of the New Testament. We even, when churches have building campaigns to raise all kinds of money for building, then we'll use Old Testament passages to bring your money to the temple so we can build a building. When nowhere in the New Testament are we ever told to construct a building. It's not saying buildings are bad, like we are obviously enjoying a building to sit in at different places today, but the church is not a building. The church is a people. And yes, while we're thankful for a building to gather and worship in, this is no temple. And wherever you're sitting is no temple, which is why our priority is not on having great buildings, but on building a great people who are caring for one another like family and growing together in Christ and sharing Christ with a world in need around us. That's what the church is about. We can't miss the shift here, so don't miss it. From the moment Jesus comes, you search the entire New Testament, you will not find any promise of material possessions in this world for spiritual obedience to God. Instead, you will find the opposite. You will find commands and exhortations to give, to sell, to sacrifice possessions in this world. And this is so significant because so many Christians, entire denominations and networks of churches around the world are still operating under an Old Testament view of wealth and possessions. That God blesses our obedience by giving us stuff in this world when Jesus never once teaches that. 
And we find it nowhere in the New Testament. And find we, instead, we find something wonderfully, radically different. And it's not that God had messed up in the Old Testament and changed his mind in the New Testament. It's all a part of his big picture plan. And the Old Testament is pointing us to a much greater plan of a people living and giving and sacrificing for the spread of God's glory among the nations. And you and I get to be a part of that plan. So God, help us not to miss this shift that happened 2,000 years ago. God, help us to live according to your plan to spread your glory, not through extravagant standards of living in this world, but through extravagant standards of giving for this world. That is a very different way to live. It's even a very different way to live from that which is sold as Christianity in many parts of the world, including many parts of our country. Number six, in all of this, we desperately need to realize the deceptive, dangerous, deadly nature of desire for money and possessions. So again, let's just be honest. Like most people in our culture and in the church just don't believe Jesus in this passage. Like when we hear Jesus say that wealth can be a barrier to entering the kingdom, we just don't believe him. Like we have so convinced ourselves that wealth, affluence, comfort, possessions, those are blessings. That's the blessing category. But Jesus just said here in Mark 10 that wealth can be a barrier to God, barrier to what matters most in life. Now, I want to be clear. The Bible doesn't teach here or anywhere else that wealth in and of itself is bad. The Bible doesn't teach that money or wealth or possessions are evil. But the Bible does give us strong warnings like this one. Just hear 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is the word of God. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Just a picture of living Simply, those who desire to be rich, beyond that, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Oh, God, help us to hear these words and to heed your warning. Like those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. It's a trap, the Bible says. The desire that comes to desire for more and nicer and newer and better, it's, it's like drinking seawater. If you're thirsty, you seawater, you think, that will be good for me. You don't realize that seawater has a high concentration of salt, so the more you drink, the more thirsty you become. The more you drink, the sooner you dehydrate. And if you keep drinking, you will get headaches, and then dry mouth and low blood pressure, rapid heart rate, eventually you will become delirious, go unconscious, and you will die. It's amazing. You see water and you think, that's what I want. But as you drink it, unbeknownst to you, you are killing yourself. I give you a picture of materialism. The more you go after money and possessions, the more they will kill your soul. And you won't realize it's happening. That's what God is saying. He's saying materialism is deceptive dangerous, ultimately deadly, which is not too strong a word. God just said in his word that the desire for riches plunges people into ruin and destruction. Like, what other words does he have to give us? And that's just the desire for riches. What about when you have what you want? Don't catch this. The Bible is telling us to give away riches and possessions, not just out of concern for others, but out of concern for ourselves. Hear God's kind, loving warning to us today. Desire the wealth of this world and it will destroy you. And the whole time you will think that you are okay. God says, run, don't walk, run from the desire for riches, the love of money, run, run. We need to realize the deceptive, dangerous, deadly nature of desire for money and possessions. That's the sixth totally countercultural truth. God help us to believe these things. Number seven, oh, hang with me. See this one, number seven. Jesus doesn't want to take away our pleasure. Instead, he wants to satisfy us with his treasure. Because number eight, Jesus desires to free us from bondage to ourselves and our stuff. Oh, don't miss the contrast here. So this man's response in verse 22, he leaves Jesus sorrowful. What a sad picture. Here's a man walking away from heavenly treasure while he's holding on to little earthly trinkets. He's walking away full of sorrow and he doesn't realize he's turning his back on the only one who can bring him eternal joy. Don't, don't let that be you. 
Don't let verse 22 be your life, walking away from the only one who can give you life. Don't let verse 22 be you. Let verse 28 be you. You look at that verse. Peter said, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus gives him promises of eternal joy. Oh, be free from bondage to self and bondage to self. Here's the good news today. I'll see it. Number nine, yes, the cost of discipleship is great, but the cost of non-discipleship is far greater. Far greater. So does it cost to follow Jesus? Absolutely does. It costs everything you have. But just ask the question, what if you don't follow Jesus? Total surrender like we're talking about here. What's the cost there? It's far, far greater. The cost of not following Jesus, of not radically surrendering to him, radically obeying him, that cost will be great. Well, think about it. For many people, for many people who are physically poor, they are hungry, oppressed, and enslaved right now, and they will continue in need while supposed Christians pursue more possessions and call it Christianity. That cost will be great for many people who are spiritually poor without Christ who will continue on toward a Christless eternity. Many without ever even hearing the name of Jesus while we live comfortable Christian lives on earth. That cost is great for many people. And the cost is great for us. For look at what we're leaving on the table. Listen to Jesus' words in Mark 10, 29 and 30. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Just circle that word, a hundredfold. Jesus says, in me, you will have a hundred times more now. He says now. Like you don't have to wait a hundredfold return now. That doesn't sound costly. That sounds compelling. I think about interviewing Dr. Z and Naomi a few weeks ago in Ethiopia, sharing how they were on this extravagant vacation back in Ethiopia when God opened their eyes to orphans in need. Jesus is called to care for them. Their lives changed in ways that have literally saved countless children's lives, created a coalition of churches caring for orphans in the capital of Ethiopia. And I asked them, do you miss your old life? And they smiled and said, not for a second. Jesus has something better for us in this world, better than what this world says is best if we will trust him, which leads to number 10. Our lives will count on earth only when our eyes are fixed on heaven. Now and then, Jesus says, in the age to come, eternal life. Oh, don't miss this. We've just walked through some crazy, radical ideas about money, at least according to our world. Sadly, even according to the Christian world, many of us have grown comfortable in. But don't miss this. The key to sacrificial giving, living like this, is realizing that this world is not our home. Let me illustrate. Imagine with me for a moment that your home is in Australia and you've come to visit the United States for a month where you live in a hotel that has everything you need. And imagine there's a rule that you can't take anything back to Australia on your flight home. You can't carry anything back with you but money. You can earn money in America, and you can send deposits back to the bank in Australia. So here's my question for you. Would you take any money that you make and buy expensive furnishings and extravagant wall hangings to put up in your hotel room? Would you like focus on making that hotel room as immaculate as possible? I'm guessing you wouldn't. And why not? Because your time here is so short. You know you can't take any of it with you. And it's a hotel room for a month. So if you're wise, you cover your needs here. But you don't invest money in your hotel room. You send it on ahead. I give you a picture of your life in this world. I see it. You are only here for a little while. The longest among us, 70, 80, 90 years. It's not very long, though, when you think about 10 trillion years and eternity will have just begun. So during these short days here, it's like a mist, the Bible says. You are bombarded with the temporary. I get stuff in this world. Make yourself comfortable in this world. But God, who knows all things and knows what is best for you and me, never, ever tells us this. Never. He actually tells us the opposite. God says, fix your eyes on another world. 
Don't store up treasure on earth. It won't last. Store up treasure in heaven. That will last. So brothers and sisters, let's take our focus off the hotel room. It's a temporary hotel room. And in an instant, you and I are gonna stand before God to give an account for how we've spent the time and money and gifts and resources we had here. And when that moment comes, we will not wish we had acquired more stuff or lived more comfortably here. We will wish we had given more of our lives and the abundance of our resources, making them count for the spread of God's glory and love in a world of urgent need. Starting right around us and extending far from us. So I just wanna urge us, let's not waste our lives. Let's not miss what matters. Ultimately, let's not miss Jesus. Will you bow your heads with me? I just want to ask you the question that we asked earlier on in this text. Like, right where you're sitting, your head bowed, just do you uh, declare allegiance to Jesus as Lord of your life such that you will do everything he says to do Give away whatever he tells you to give away. I'm guessing there are some, maybe many, who've come here today. And when you walked in here, if I were to ask you that question, the answer was no. If you were honest, the answer was no. But right now, in this moment, just like Mark 10, you're standing before Jesus. I want to give you an opportunity to say yes. Just in your heart, right where you're sitting, I want to give you an opportunity to say, yes, I declare allegiance to Jesus as Lord of my life today. Like this is what I've, I've, I've prayed that supernaturally God would bring many people to this point today, where today you are saying, I declare allegiance to Jesus as Lord. My life is his. Save me from my sin, myself, and to lead me, sole leadership of my life. Oh God, you see like hands raised before you, not walking away from you, not doing verse 22, walking away with possessions in hand, but laying possessions down, saying, you're Lord, take my life. Take my life, lead me, guide me, use everything in my life, God, please. Hear their prayer. Show yourself as the Savior of sin and the Savior of self and all the endless empty quests for satisfaction in this world. Pray that they would know life in you, life through surrender to you today. Not just today, but in the age to come, like forever and ever and ever. And I praise you for that supernatural work in hearts today. And I, I pray, God, for all who would say coming in today, yes, Jesus is Lord. God, we need you to continually transform our hearts. Make our hearts more like yours, Jesus, we pray. Make our heart as a church more like yours. Lord, you've given us so much. By your grace, you've given us so much. We want to be faithful stewards with what you've entrusted to us. Please help us to take the wealth you've given us and use it for the spread of your worship in the world. Help us to follow you, Jesus. Truly, help us to follow you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. You can download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries by visiting the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's programs on your Android or iPhone. Just search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602-866-8999 or heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Coming up next is Refining Faith. Hello, listeners of Heart and Soul Ministries. It's Sharon Lee from Refining Faith. The 2020 New Year is here. Happy New Year, everyone. When the New Year is here, we have the hope and expectation of the year going well. As you welcome the New Year, What did you wish for? What kind of love are you hoping for? Strangely, even though we've been saved and placed our hope in heaven, we still hope to live and eat well here on earth. To us who are like this, the Bible often uses a word that might not sound so pleasant. It's the word refine. Romans chapter 5 verse 4 says, The strength to go on produces character. Character produces hope. First Peter chapter 4 verse 12 says, The trouble you are having has come to test you, so don't feel as if something strange were happening to you. Also, Isaiah chapter 48 verse 10 says, I have tested you in the furnace of suffering. I have tried to make you pure but I did not use as much heat as it takes to make a silver pure. Proverbs chapter 17 verse 3 says, Fire tests silver, and heat tests gold, but the Lord tests our hearts. In Hebrew, which is the language of Old Testament, the word refine is zraf, and it means to melt metal. It also means refine, and smelt like a goldsmith melting gold. When we hear verses regarding refining, we make this kind of a determination. Yes, God is refining me. Refining leads to hope. Things are happening to refine me, so I must overcome. However, when the refining is not just in the verses, but actually appears in our lives, then we have a completely different reaction. When something disappointing, discouraging, or hopeless happens, I realize that I show a different reaction than what I thought, such as complaining, getting annoyed, and being resentful. Therefore, when I experience this, I quickly try to solve the problem with my own strength. How about you? How do you react when happiness and peace is broken? In Ruth chapter 1, there are three women named Naomi, Ruth, Orpah. Among them, Naomi said this, Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara. The Mighty One has made my life very bitter. I was full when I went away, but the Lord has brought me back empty. So why are you calling me Naomi? The Lord has made me suffer. The Mighty One has brought trouble on me. This is from Ruth chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. The original meaning of the name Naomi is happy, joyful, lovely. And Mara means bitter. Naomi had a name meaning joyful, but her situation now had no joy but full of suffering. She lamented about her bitter life. Naomi was a Jew living in abundant life in Bethlehem, but when famine came, she left with her husband and two sons to live in Moab. However, her husband, Elimelech, died, and her two sons each met Moab women named Ruth and Orpah and got married. 
When it had been 10 years since living in Moab, her two sons died. How would Naomi have felt? She left her hometown and came to another land, but her husband died and her two sons also died. She only had her two daughter-in-laws left with her. In the society where a widow couldn't live on her own, Naomi lost hope. In her situation of despair and hopelessness, Naomi said to call her Mara. Theologians say that Naomi used expression that the Almighty had punished and distressed her. She had resentment and complained against God. Naomi acknowledged God's sovereignty and called him God Almighty. However, she also complained that her life was this way because the Almighty made it like so. If you were in Naomi's situation, what kind of reaction would you have shown? I think most of us would have similar reaction like Naomi. We acknowledge God's existence and His sovereignty, but we complain and resent Him by saying, God broke the peace in my life and made me like this. However, the reason Naomi reacted like this was because she didn't know God well. God didn't punish or distress Naomi, as she said. Anyone can go through the things she went through in life. God was preparing a blessing for Naomi, who was going through such hardship, but she couldn't see God's hand in it. During refining, most people don't see God, who is preparing a blessing. Therefore, they spend that time complaining and resenting. However, People who know God must look at God during refining. This program, Refining Faith, is about disciplining us to look at God's hand during refining. Starting next time, we will look at the people in the Bible and learn about refining faith more in detail. We'll end Refining Faith.
Our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week. <music>